The day was Good Friday. To them, it wasn't. It was called the Passover. It was a day of commemoration, of celebration, of gratitude. It was also a day of ritual. A lamb would be selected per family, per man. It would be examined. It would be slain. Its blood would be put upon the doorposts and the lentil of the house. It was commemorating what God had done so many years previously when he set his people free from Egypt. But it was also looking forward to something that God would do on a day in the future. But that day, that first Good Friday, that last Passover as it was when Jesus was there upon the earth, it was different. Because it wasn't just a commemoration and a celebration and a ritual, but it was also a fulfillment. It was a fulfillment of the Passover, the one that they did every year, but the one that would be sacrificed for them once and forever. It was the first Good Friday. But there was also an hour in that day. It was the hour. It was the hour that Jesus had so often spoken of throughout his earthly ministry. It was the hour that he spoke of when Mary so desperately desired for him to work at that wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. And he looked at her and he said, Don't you know, woman, that my hour is not yet. It happened a little bit later in his ministry that the religious establishment, they were incensed at what Jesus was doing. And it says that they sought to lay hands on him, to bring him to a place of stopping what it was that he was doing. But the scripture tells us that his hour was not yet. There was another point where the same thing happened, but it says that his hour was not yet. But that hour did come. You say, well, what hour was that? What's the hour it was speaking of? You're in John chapter 13. It tells us what that hour was and what happened when it came. It says in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. We're told that that hour was the hour that he would depart out of this world. Well, what is it that's so significant about that hour? Well, that hour would define the very reason for existence itself. That when God first spoke, light be and light was, when he said, let there be light, it was looking forward to that hour that would come. When it says that the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters and darkness was over the deep, the reason for that life-brooding Spirit over the waters was because of that hour that would come. When God planted two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, He planted those trees knowing what hour those trees would ultimately be aiming towards. When God made man in His image, it was knowing that man's entire destiny would hang upon that hour. And all of the history, the prophets, Jesus' earthly life and ministry was funneling towards that hour. You say, well, what still is the significance of that hour? Is there a way to define it? There is. It's a verse. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know it, perhaps by heart. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. He gave his son. He who believes would not perish. 
It signifies that God paid a price. That man had a need. That he was lost. He was in the category of perishing, but he needed to be taken out of that category and placed into the category of life and of salvation. And the price that was to be paid was God's son in and of itself. And so the verse signifies a price. And the reason for that price was ransom, to rescue man from his lost and dying condition. That was the reason. But what was the price? You see, isn't price relative to cost? I mean, if you or I had to pay a price, and let's say that price was a million dollars. Well, for you and me, that would be a great price because we don't have, at least most of us, a million dollars to just be able to pay a price, whether it be a ransom or anything else. But what about someone who's extremely wealthy? You know, the kind of person that just kind of can lose a million dollars in a day and they don't really even have to think much of it. You know, I'm talking stupid wealthy. We hear about those people. Many of us don't even know them. But if they have to pay a million dollars, it's really not a big price for them. It, it, it's a big price, but it doesn't cost them all that much because of what they have. Well, when you're dealing with a God of infinite wealth who has the cattle on a thousand hills, who can speak things into existence, then how do you qualify what a price costs? Cost can't be calculated in that sense. But yet God still wanted us to know what that cost would be, the cost of redeeming man, what that price uh, would also be. Now, that's impossible for us to understand, but God wanted us to know. So here's what he did. He put it in a story, and he painted a picture for us so that we could comprehend and understand just what he did. The story, it's in Genesis chapter 22. The man, it's the father of believers. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The father of believers, the man Abraham. The man through whom the idea of belief is based. What's his background? Well, he was called out of Babylon. He was a pagan worshiper, and at the age of 75, God spoke into his life, and he said, I want you to leave this place, leave your family, your friends, and I want you to go to a place that I will tell you of. And so Abraham heeded the call that was given to him, and he went. He arrived in a land that would one day be Israel, and a promise was given to him there. God spoke to him and said, you will one day be the father of many nations, and in you all the tribes of the world will be blessed. And Abraham received provision from God. He received protection, preservation, reputation, strength. God blessed everything that Abraham did. And for 25 years, God was with him. He had victory. He was given mercy. He had revelation of God. He had privilege. But there was only one problem. That in all those years of following God, of being increased and provided for and protected, what he still didn't have was a son. The promise God gave is that you'll be the father of many nations, that through your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But he had no son. And so at the age of 100, his wife Sarah was 90, well past the years of bearing children. Abraham confused, perplexed, not knowing how is it that this will happen. It was then that God came through and he gave to Abraham a son. The God who can do the impossible did the impossible. And at the age of 100, Isaac was born. And life for Abraham at that time took off. It became all about Isaac. This is the fulfillment. This is what God gave me. And all of Abraham's wealth, which is estimated in the hundreds of millions, 
meant nothing to him any longer. Everything was all about this son that would ultimately be the fulfillment of God's promise for his life. Now, the reason I give you that background, that history, is to point out that Abraham had a relationship with God. He walked with him. He listened to him. At each successive stage of Abraham's life, God showed himself to Abraham in a fuller and more richer way. In the very first segment, the first chapter and a few verses of Abraham's story, we're told he built three altars to the Lord and called upon his name. An act of worship, of submission, of obedience. A little while later, Abraham had an experience where he saw the true and the living God defeat the lowercase gods of Sodom and the people of the land. And God was revealed to Abraham in a new way. Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, El Elyon, that is, the Most High God. That he's above any other thing that's ever been called God or worshipped or esteemed as God. He's a higher God. He's the Most High God. A little while later, Abraham meets the Lord again and he learns through the promise that Isaac will be born that God is bigger than human limitations. That he can give us a son even though we're well past the age and he calls on the name of the Lord El Shaddai or Almighty God. That he's the omnipotent God. The God whose nothing is too hard for. But again, If we look at God that way, he's almighty, he's omnipotent, isn't that a little bit relative? I mean, a God that can do anything, but that's kind of relative to what we need or what we think, right? People ask the question, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You know, and we go, wait a minute, okay, wait, well, yes, wait, because he can do anything, but wait, but then he can't lift it, but he can lift anything. We go, oh, you know, and we start to get our heads spun around like, well, what exactly can God do? Well, isn't power relative to need? Or want? It's like a little boy. He's on the playground and he wants to impress a little girl that he sees swinging on the swings. And so he goes over. He wants to show her how strong he is. So he gets on the monkey bars and he hangs by one hand. And he goes, look at me. And then he pulls himself up and hangs upside down by his legs and swings back and forth. And he goes, look at me. I can do anything. I'm strong. But she ignores him. Why? Because she could care less what he can do. And sometimes isn't it like that with God? Well, we know that he can do anything. But what is our need? And can he meet that need? And Abraham met God in that season of his life as El Shaddai. He's the almighty God that he can do the impossible. Abraham needs a son. He's 100 years old. He realizes that his God can make it happen. But it doesn't end there. Because you get to chapter 21, the chapter before our chapter. By this time, Abraham's received his promise. He's been given the son. Isaac's been weaned. He's grown up a little bit. He's had some time, some experience with Abraham. And again, God continues to bless and to satisfy Abraham's life. And so Abraham, reflecting on his experiences and the history with God, in a moment of worship, he calls on God and he gives him a new name. He calls him El Olam, that is, the everlasting God. And the idea is, here's the realization. I know that you're the Most High. I know that you're Almighty and Omnipotent. But I'm realizing that you are also infinite. That is extremely critical in anyone's understanding of the Lord. See, because if he's God, which he was at the beginning, and then he's the most high God, which puts him above all others, and then he's almighty God, which means that he can do all things, that's all good, but it wears out. But he's not just that. He's also infinite, which means that what he supplies, who he is within our lives, it keeps going and going and going and going. And he's everlasting. In a soul that has an unlimited capacity, which is what we have and what we are, needs a God who's infinite and that never stops filling or else that soul becomes unsatisfied at a certain point. 
And Abraham realized those years into his life and his walk with God that he's the everlasting God. And he had grown, but God wasn't done. See, it wasn't enough that Abraham just knew God as God or the Most High God or the Almighty God or the everlasting God. There was more. God wanted to reveal himself to Abraham yet again. And so we come to our text in chapter 22. And there's a whole new lesson, a whole new chapter, a whole new segment in Abraham's experience. It begins with a test. Look with me at verse 1. It says that it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham. And he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. It begins with a test. A test is a question or a series of questions that are designed to reveal or expose. We all know that. A test, we're given questions, we're quizzed upon what we know or what we would do, and our answer or our response to it reveals what we know or what we are, and it exposes what's inside of us. So that's what a test is designed to do. But with God, when God tests, a test has another thing that it does, a third element. It doesn't just reveal and expose, it also teaches. We learn through the tests who God is in greater and fuller measure. And so Abraham is going to learn something in this as well. There's a test. It's going to expose what's in his heart. It's also going to reveal God. And what we discover as we look at this test is that it's not about what's inside Abraham or how Abraham responds to what God asks. This test is all about God revealing himself to Abraham in a way that Abraham needs to see. We also discover that what God is doing is way different than what it appears on the surface. Well, what happens? What's the test? It involves in verse 2, two things, a place and a task. Notice with me. It says, and he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Now, if you've never read this passage before, you have just had a furrow come into your brow. What? What did God just ask Abram to do? I mean, wherever does this God that we serve ever condone or ask or in any way even speak of human sacrifice? And now Isaac, the son that Abram loves, God is saying, I want you to offer him to me. Is God having one of those days where he's just kind of like not feeling very good about himself? And he just wants to see perhaps if Abram will put God first in his life. And, and so he is just, yeah, let me see what Abraham would do if I asked him this. I'm sure probably that's what Abraham thought a little bit, at least a little. This is a matter of priority, what God is doing in this. He wants to see if I've got my priorities right. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what this is all about, is it? The place that... God tells Abram to go is called Mount Moriah, the land of Moriah, a place of great biblical significance. This is the first time it's mentioned, but later on, this very land where Abram is called to go will be owned by a man named Aruna. It will then be sold for a price to King David, and ultimately it will become the place where the temple that was built by Solomon would be constructed and built there in Israel, the temple mount that exists in Israel today, the land of Moriah. It would also be the very place, the pinnacle of Mount Moriah would be the very place where Jesus Christ would be crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so this land of Moriah becomes a very significant place in our study of the scriptures as we, as we discover it and we go on. The task he's told to offer his son is a sacrifice. He's called the son that you love. This is the first time, Genesis 22, verse 2, that the word love is used in the Bible. 
And that sets the tone for the definition of love throughout the Bible from Genesis 2, Revelation. And it's used in the context of a father's love for his son. And if you've ever experienced that love, whether it be from a father you've had or from a son, perhaps, or a daughter that you've had, then you understand the context of that love. It's a selfless love. It's a different kind of love than the affection that we feel towards things or what we like or what we esteem or our camaraderie or our recreational you know, friends and companions. It's a deep love. And so he says, take the son that you love and I want you to offer him for me. Now put yourself in Abram's place for a minute. You've been walking with God at this point for nearly 50 years. That's the timeline when you put the dates together. God's been faithful. He's been constant. He's been abundant. He's taken Abram deeper. And now he puts his finger, God does, on the one thing that is the most important thing to Abram in his life. It's the sum total of everything that he left Babylon for all those years ago and the sum total inheritance of every experience that he has had with God between that time and this time. And now God says, Abram, offer it. I want you to put it on the altar and put it there for me. Now, if we were to ask Abraham what the question is, he would think that this is a matter of priority. But there's a clue that's given to us at the end of the verse that tells us that there's more to it than that. This isn't about just something that God is trying to see what's in Abram. But notice what God says to him. He says, offer him there on one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. In other words, it's not the mountain that I'm going to point to when you get there and say that's the one, but it's the mountain I want to tell you about. I want you to go to Moriah because I'm going to reveal something to you there. I'm going to show you the significance of that place. And that's what's behind this great message. And so the test, it involves a place. It involves a task. Well, the drama in verse 3, it says that Abraham rose up early in the morning. And he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son. And he claved the wood for the burnt offering. And he rose up and he went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abram said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father, and he said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there. And he laid the wood in order. Then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Pause with me for one second. This deed that Abraham is doing in obedience to what God is calling him to at this point, it takes a few things. It takes, first of all, it takes time and calculation. The very nature of this request is going to require that there is a span of time that passes between the asking and the doing. God asks Abram to do this, but then Abram has to travel somewhere to do it, which means he's got to contemplate and think about what's going on. 
He can't just quickly turn around and push a button and say, okay, God just asked me to do this. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm going to block out the implications, and I'm just going to do it in blind obedience, and God, you can just have it, and, and here, just do it. It doesn't work that way. It's going to take three days just to get there. He had to think about what he was going to do, and he had to think about what it was going to cost. And basically, for him to obey God in this thing was going to cost him everything that he has ever lived for up to this point. And the only thing that really mattered to Abraham was going to have to be offered up for him to do this. But he had to think about it. It also took planning and preparation. He had to make arrangements. He had to pack for the journey. He had to saddle his donkey. He had to go to his son Isaac and ask him to come. He had to look at him in the face and say, Isaac, we've got somewhere to go. And then he had to go, and he couldn't tell Sarah where they were going or what they were going to do or what God had asked him. There wasn't another human on the planet that he could talk to about this thing or seek counsel from because they all would have said he was crazy. But yet he knew what it was that God was calling him to do. He had to bring along the wood. It says that he clave it. He had to bring with him a knife, knowing what that knife was going to be used for. He had to bring with him some form of fire-starting material because he knew that he was going to light a fire and he had to think about the fact that that fire was going to incinerate the flesh of his son, the only son that he had, and the son that God even said that I know you love. But he had to do it because God called him to do it. It also took individual introspection. He had to ask himself the same kind of questions we would ask ourselves. He had to ask himself, is it worth it? I mean, I've walked with God for all these years, but maybe I've come to that point in my relationship with God where I don't really want to go any further than I am right now. I know him. He's God. He's the most high God. He's almighty God. He's everlasting God. And that's good enough. I don't need to know him any deeper. God, we could just continue on this thing. You've given me the promise. I've got my son. And and Lord, I I love you, but I, I can't do this. Can I do this? And he had to think about it. Can I go through with it? Will I be able to, when I get up that mountain, take the knife and plunge it into my son, as God is asking me to do? Can I even do it? Do I still want to follow him, even though he's asking me to do it? What happens in my life if I say no? What will happen to me if I say no to God? Will God then just take him? Or will, what, what will happen? These are the questions Abraham had to ask. It also took wrestling and risk. He had to wrestle with the promises of God. Wait, God, you promised me Isaac. You said to me that in Isaac, my seed will be called. In other words, Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise. So if you told me that Isaac is going to be the fulfillment, but now you're telling me to kill Isaac, how can Isaac be the fulfillment when you told me God? And he had to wrestle with the fact that God had told him one thing, and now God was asking him to do it. But it also took risk. Here's why. Because what if Abraham wasn't hearing from God right? You know, the Bible says that these men were men of like passions, just like we are. Abraham didn't have a pager from God or a cell phone, and he got a text message like, hey, this is God, I want you to do this, or a phone. He heard the Lord the same way we hear the Lord. It's through the hearing of the Spirit, through the ears of faith. So what if I'm not hearing you right, God? This is inconsistent with everything I've ever known of you that you want me to do it. So what if I go through with this, and I find out that I was the fool? And that I was acting on my emotions, or that this wasn't really from you, and I lose Isaac forever. What happens if there's a great risk here in my obedience to you? It also took sacrifice and pain. He had to look into Isaac's face and think about the years of boyhood, the smiles and the laughs, the years of his discovery. The first time Abram was there when he saw Isaac discover a butterfly and follow it with eyes with wonder in his face as he looked at the creation of God. The first time he ever saw a camel and a camel spit 
And he watched him grow up before him. He saw his coming of age, him beginning to become a man. Isaac was probably close to 30 years old at this time when this incident happened within his life. And all of the thoughts of what he was giving up came into his mind. And there was an element of pain in it because he was going to have to watch him walk up a hill carrying the very wood that would soon burn him up. And this here is the hardest thing that God has ever asked Abraham to do. What's the outcome? Look with me at verse 10. It says that Abraham stretched forth his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The first thing that happens is that there's interruption. God stops him. He calls out quickly. He says, Abraham, Abraham. At the very moment that Abraham was going to go through with it, out of faith and trust and fear, we're told, he did it. And God interrupted and said, stop. And at that moment, God interrupted and he said, don't touch the boy. He said, now I know that you fear God. Now, when I read that, it raises a flag. I say, wait a minute, fear? Isn't that a little bit out of context? I mean, this whole thing, where is fear even an element in this whole story? God said, take your son that you love. I I didn't think this would be about Abram fearing God. I would think this would be about Abram loving God or trusting God or relying upon God or believing in God. In Hebrews, it even tells us that Abraham had this faith that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. So what does this have to do with fear? Now, not saying that fear is a bad thing. Fear is a good thing. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. And we're to walk in the fear of God. But why does it mention it here? Here's why. And this is important. Because up to this point in Abram's life, that was the only thing that, the only um, ingredient that, that bound him and God, so to speak. See, he knew God as a friend. In fact, Abraham's called the friend of God. He was close to God, but think about the relationship that he had. He was the most high God. He was almighty God. He was everlasting God. But all of those things are somewhat detached. They're friend things, but they're not heart things. They're not intimate things. And fear was the only element that Abram had up to this point. And that's why God mentions fear in this, in this, this chapter, this point. He says, now I know that you fear me because you haven't withheld your son from me. But listen, it's not about that. It's not about fear. See, God already knew that Abraham feared him. Do you think, really honestly, that God doesn't know what's in our hearts? The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes with whom we have to do. He sees right to the very core of what we are. He sees and knows if we fear God or not. Abraham knew that Abraham feared God. God knew that Abraham feared God. This wasn't about the fear element. But it doesn't stop with just the interruption and the information that you fear me. But notice what happens next. There's a substitution. And here's where this is going. God says, Abram, I know that you fear me. But there's something deeper than fear that I want you to understand in my relationship with you. My thoughts towards you, Abram, are so much more than just a servant and his master, the creator and his created, the finite and the infinite. I want you to know, Abram, that what I want with you is so much greater, so much deeper than that. So here's what God does. Look at the conclusion of the matter. Verse 13. It says that Abram lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Pause for just a second. He turns around and he sees something there. He sees a ram. And it's caught in the thorns by its horns. And so he says, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. And he takes that ram, frees it from the thorns, and then he offers that ram instead. You say, okay, what's the point? Here's the point. Watch the final verse, verse 14. It says, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day. Now watch this. He says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Do you see that? He doesn't say, in the mount of the Lord, God provided for me to not have to offer my son. He speaks of the future. And he says, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. You see, the whole episode of what's going on here between God and Abraham is not about Abraham, do you fear me? Or are you worthy? Or are you willing? See, the initial question that Abraham thought God was asking is, am I first in your life? Abraham, show me that I'm first in your life by offering my son. But that wasn't what it was about at all. It wasn't, will you do this thing for me? The real question that God was asking Abraham in this whole thing by asking him to do this was not, are you willing to sacrifice your son? It was so simply profound as to say, Abraham, you know me as the Most High. And you know me as the Almighty. And you know me as the Everlasting. But Abraham, do you want to know how much I love you? Because this is what I'm going to do for you. In the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. What was the cost of the cross? What did it cost God to give his son as the ransom for the sins of the world? How does an infinitely wealthy God put a price tag on something as valuable as redemption and then communicate to you and I what that cost would be? God says to Abram, I'm going to take my son. I'm going to take my only begotten, eternally preexistent, inseparable part of my person, the very image and nature of who I am. And he's going to walk for 30 years. And I'm going to watch him take on humanity and discover life and develop just like you and come of age and learn as man learns. And he's going to go through everything that man goes through. He's going to grow and feel and he's going to face life and he's going to be tempted at every point like as you are. And then I'm going to take my son that I love and I'm going to put him on a donkey. And I'm going to take him to the land of Moriah. And I'm going to take wood and I'm going to put it on his back. And it's not going to be the Romans and it's not going to be the Jews. It's going to be me. And I'm going to put it on his back and he's going to carry it up. And I'm going to offer him there. And he will be the sacrifice that atones for the sin of the whole world. And Abraham, it's going to take something. It's going to take time and calculation. The hour and the day will be known from eternity past. That the hour that everything was funneling towards will be planned and prepared from the moment of first creation all the way through into the time that he comes. It's going to take that planning. That everything that was ever done will be pointing to that time. Creation itself will be pointing to that time. The garden, the tree, the very mountain of Moriah that was carved by God himself in the beginning. The place of the skull. The nation, the land, the tribe, the family of David, the prophets, the priesthood, Moses, the law, all of it will be pointing to that time because of what I'm going to do. But it's going to take more than that, Abram. It's going to take some wrestling on my part. And it's going to take some risk. Because somewhere underneath it, I have to ask myself, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Do I love fallen man enough that I would give up my son? What if man doesn't respond? There's some risk involved because I'm going to separate myself from my son 
and I'm going to put him in the world in the same flesh that Adam had, under the same conditions. And if my son, if Jesus sins, if he gives in to any one of those temptations, no matter how small it is, even if it's in the smallest, slightest thing, then I risk something. I lose him forever. Because he won't raise from the dead after he dies. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. But if he's not sinless, I lose him forever. If he doesn't overcome, and not only do I lose him, but I lose man who I'm seeking to redeem, and I end up with nothing. God says the risk involved in this is great because I am risking everything, the son who I love, and I'm gambling it all for your sake so that I can win you as a prize to myself. It also is going to take sacrifice and pain because for the first moment ever, I will have to turn my back on my son. That the moment that the darkness of sin is laid upon him and my wrath is poured out as he's upon that cross, he is going to feel and I am going to feel that separation as he cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's going to cause me pain to have to do that, to offer him. I'll forsake him, he'll feel it. My heart will break. And there's not going to be a ram that's caught in the thicket. He will be the one with the crown of thorns. And he'll be the one that's offered in your place. But Abraham, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. And here's why. Because I love you. And in that I'm doing it because I love you, I'm doing it because I love you as much as I love him. That there's an equivalency in that love. And as much as I am to you, Abraham, God, or the Most High God, or the Almighty God, or the Everlasting God, that's all good. But all that's cheap. It's easy. I want you to know how much I love you. As much as you value Isaac, if you could ever put a price on that, it wouldn't give you the same, or what wouldn't you give to save him if you could? And that's how much I love you. I'm going to take the only thing that matters, and that's what I'm going to give, and I'm going to do it because I want you close to me. When we consider that verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We often hear it, we quote it, but so seldom do we realize the cost that's associated with that price and what it means. To realize just how much God loves you and he showed it on a wooden cross almost 2,000 years ago. And yet the resounding word of God's love towards you is just as loud and just as clear tonight as it was then. We're going to take communion tonight and the ushers can come forward at this time and begin to hand it out. But as they, they come, I want to just read to you a couple of verses. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. It wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, it wasn't a price, it wasn't a possession. It was the very blood of his son. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Do you realize that you were created for God's pleasure? That he made you because he loves you. And he paid the ultimate price and demonstrated how deep that love is in a way that we could never comprehend and will never fully understand. 
but it cost him greatly. Father, we thank you tonight as we gather to think about, Lord, what you've done and who you are. We ask, Lord, that you would give us in this time of communion with you an understanding, a deeper perspective, comprehension, Lord, of just how great, how wide, how broad your love is towards us. Jesus, be here in this place. In Jesus' name.